Since the dawn of civilization, spies of every nation and culture have worked to infiltrate their adversaries and glean the information that will give their side the advantage. The stakes are sky high, the strategies varied and imaginative, and the ultimate sign of success is that no one ever even knew you were there. In each episode, we will explore the moral and ethical gray zones of espionage, where treachery and betrayal go hand in hand with cunning and courage. This is the Spycraft 101 podcast. Welcome to your clandestine classroom. This is episode number 33 of the Spycraft 101 podcast. I'm joined today by Trevor Barnes, a former senior reporter and producer for the British Broadcasting Corporation and a retired attorney. He's also a published crime novelist and widely respected historian of espionage. His most recent book is Dead Doubles, The Extraordinary Worldwide Hunt for One of the Cold War's Most Notorious Spy Rings, published by HarperCollins in the U.S., Ed and Widenfield in the U.K. This book documents the story of the infamous KGB Portland spy ring, which operated in England in the 1950s, but whose tentacles stretched right around the world, and which I have briefly touched on in a previous episode. Trevor, I appreciate you coming on the show with me today. Absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. This is a story that I've wanted to learn more about for a really long time. A few weeks ago, I interviewed Tim Tate, who I think that you know, and we spoke about Yeah, this. lovely guy. Yeah, he, he really is. That was a great interview for sure. We spoke about the Portland Spy Ring for just a minute or two during the recording, but of course, they're worth a lot more discussion than a brief mention before you move on. And I don't think at this point that anybody knows the Portland Spy Ring better than you do. Well, that's kind of you to say so. <laughs> sure. So I see, obviously, you've had this really long career in media and reporting, but this is your first published nonfiction book, right? It is exactly right, yeah. So what was it that made you choose this particular subject for your first major nonfiction book? Well, when I semi-retired from being an attorney and decided I wanted to have some new challenges, I thought that I would have a go at writing non-fiction. When I was at college and uh, studied in Boston, I got really interested in the early history of the CIA and the Cold War and wrote some academic articles. And I was so intrigued by the whole issue of espionage and intelligence and the Cold War, I cast around for a subject to write about and came across the Portland Spy Ring. And it so happened that at the time I came upon the subject, a raft of documents relating to this spy ring and the investigation by the British equivalent of the FBI MI5 into the spy ring in 1960-61 came out. And so I thought, well, this is absolutely marvellous. And I, I was intrigued by the characters, the story. It's absolutely riveting. And you can follow the investigation in these papers from the first clue through to the arrests, right through indeed to the end of the story that we'll, we'll talk about in the, in the coming minutes, Justin, I'm sure. Yeah, absolutely. That was one of the things that really, in my mind, that set this part, this book apart from so many other histories that I've read, that so much of it is like a play-by-play -play of the investigation itself. I've, I've never seen that level of detail about how this counter-espionage investigation actually took place. So that was a real treat, honestly, to see, you know, day by day, hour by hour, agent and investigator by agent and investigator it was really interesting stuff for sure. 
Thank you. Well, I, I enjoyed writing it. The other fun thing was investigating, which was a counter-espionage exercise in itself, the families of the MI5 investigators, because traditionally MI5 and British intelligence services are very much shrouded in history. And it was really fascinating digging out in a sort of gumshoe way details of the families and who these men were because they were men i mean sadly there were very few women a lot of sexism around back in the 1950s early 60s as we're only well aware very few female intelligence officers but making contact with these families and then persuading them to trust me to write the story of their fathers accurately and fairly and I'm delighted to say that they cooperated completely and as a result I dug out a lot of new material which was not in the official MI5 papers which added colour to the story because when you're writing a story like this and the history it's very easy to just take the documents and you can write it as a dry desiccated narrative and there's no color there's no there's no energy there's no kind of feeling of being there and i was determined to try and do that in this book so people had a sense of what it was like being in in britain and indeed america and other countries in you know, 1960-61 well yeah i think you captured that really well as someone who was not there during that time period but i i really kind of related to the characters, um, especially the investigators and the way that their family lives, I, I guess, intertwined a little bit with the investigation, which I thought was really interesting as well. But it shows the, the human side of those guys for sure and the members of the ring itself, too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And th th that was fascinating as well. Actually going to visit the sites um, associated with the spies and one of the things that's quite fun in the book was a, a map which I pulled together with the publisher of London in 1960-61 and it's almost a kind of map of the investigation and so when people can start traveling again and if they ever come to London they can always take that map and they can trace a walk, if you like, the Portland Spiring walk around London from whether it be MI6's headquarters, MI5 headquarters, the places where the spies met, their KGB controller, where they were arrested and so on and so forth. So all of that was just part of the immense fun and stimulation of, of researching and writing this book. Wow. Yeah, I actually get that completely. In fact, while I was reading, I stopped and I went and I bookmarked in Google Maps. I put a pin on the park across from the Old Vic, the entrance of the Old Vic, because I was like, man, oh, I've got right, to go to that yeah. place. So I tend to do that with a lot of my readings. Is I've got pins all over Europe now, honestly, for the next time I, I visit. <laughs> well, ho hopefully you'll, you'll come to London and we can have a chat in person. I'll show you a couple of the locations, Justin. Oh, wow. That would be fantastic. I appreciate that. Yeah. So the, the title of the book is Dead Doubles, which is certainly an attention grabber. How did you come up with that title to begin with? I wanted to highlight the fact that of the spy ring, the Portland spy ring consisted of, of five individuals, two women and three men. And three of them were what are known as illegals, KGB illegals. The Russians have always had two types of spies, the legals and the illegals. And the legals are the ones who operate out of the embassies around the world. And they are officially KGB officers when the KGB was the name of the Russian Foreign Intelligence Service. And obviously they can be followed around with relative ease by the host intelligence, counterintelligence service, because these people have to be accredited in the embassy. They benefit from diplomatic 
diplomatic status. And so if they're of a court in the midst of dealing with an agent, stealing secrets, having them transferred, the worst that can happen for them is they get exposed and then they get expelled from the country. But the the gold dust, if you like, what the Russians have always sought is to have illegals. These are very, very carefully trained spies whose job it is to swim with the fishes. They have to adopt a completely different persona and what's known in the spycraft trade as a legend. They have to, in effect, become somebody else. And a whole identity is manufactured by the Russian intelligence service to enable them to do this. And three of the five spies in the Portland spy ring were illegals and they had to have fake identities. And one way in which the KGB had done this traditionally was to use the trick which was highlighted by Frederick Forsyth in his classic thriller Day of the Jackal, which is to steal the identity of a dead child who was born around the time of the sort of expected birth date of a spy. So if you think they were likely to have been born by way of example in the year 1990, you would try and find a child who was born about that time but who died, say, in the late 1990s, and then you would steal their identity. And this was much easier to do in the past than it is now. And these type of spies were called dead doubles because they had taken on the identity of a dead person. And one of the five spies, we'll talk about him a bit later, no doubt, um, whose cover name was Gordon Lonsdale, had done precisely that. He had stolen the identity of a young Canadian boy who had was born in 1924 in Ontario in Canada and then had gone, it turned out subsequently, back to Russia and almost certainly died. And on the basis of the KGB getting a birth certificate for this man on the basis of which this individual who became Gordon Lonsdale could then get a driving license in Canada. He could then apply for a Canadian passport. So he had taken over like a cuckoo, if you like. He'd kind of pushed the the, the dead child out of, of existence and taken over his identity. That's a dead double. And so that's why I chose the name. Hmm. Yeah, well, it's certainly an attention grabber, and it's amazing to me, really, to think that three of them were caught in one investigation. That seems so, so rare, I would imagine. I think that's the first case I've come across in in so much reading that I've done over the past couple of years about this. I don't know of another case with three all wrapped up in a single investigation. The only parallel is a relatively modern one where, in fact, more than three were caught. This is Operation Ghost Stories. You might remember in 2010 when the FBI rolled up a whole network of illegals who were um, operating in America, the most famous of which was the uh, very good-looking young lady called Anna Chapman. Yes, yes, and this yes. made headlines around the world because subsequently they were arrested by the FBI. They'd been tracked by the FBI for quite a few years because they had an agent in Moscow who had tipped them off about this network of illegals. There was then a spy swap after they were arrested in 2010. But you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, there's no parallel number of, of illegals arrested during the Cold War to match that of, of the Portland spy ring. So three of them were, as we'll discover when we talk further, arrested on exactly the same day, on the 7th of January, 1961. Right, so the book 
the book opens with this incredible moment. It's like the aha moment of the investigation, I would call it, <laughs> where the MI5 gets into one of Gordon's safe deposit boxes and finds a lot of his, his tradecraft, his spy gear stuff, right? And yeah, I have to imagine exactly. that that's so incredibly rare for that to happen. I mean, of course, it leads later on to finding these this entire ring. But yeah, I don't recall another time when so much evidence was found so quickly. And it really just draws you into the whole story. They had some amazingly complex stuff that they were using even 60 years ago, I thought. Well, absolutely. I mean, what, what was particularly interesting about this discovery was that it was made while the investigation was in progress. I mean, normally what tends to happen is that you have a spy who is under surveillance and then they're arrested. And subsequently, when the FBI or MI5 go and they collect all the evidence, that's when they find all the, the evidence. Because, of course, the real worry is that if they go in and start searching someone's apartment or their house or whatever, that will alert the spy to the fact that they're under surveillance. And they then are exfiltrated by Moscow Center out to Russia or in or Peking, you know, if they're a Chinese spy. What was remarkable about Portland spy ring was that the illegal I've just spoken about who adopted the Canadian identity of a businessman called Gordon Lonsdale was already under surveillance from July 1960 when he was seen to come up to London and meet two other spies in the ring whose names were Harry Houghton and his girlfriend Ethel G. And Gordon Lonsdale therefore got onto the radar screen of MI5. They used what was known as their watchers. They had a team of surveillance people in John the Carré's novels and he calls them the lamplighters. And they kept Gordon Lonsdale under surveillance. And at the end of August, he was uh, 1960, he was seen to go into a bank with three parcels, a bank right in the middle of London in an area called Fitzrovia. And he came out with nothing in his hands. He clearly left the three packages in the bank. And then he literally just disappeared. MI5 had no idea where he'd gone. They intercepted various phone calls of his, which suggested that he had gone back to Canada for six to eight weeks. But there was no record of him leaving the country. In those days, you didn't have the sort of element of digital uh, records and, and, and traces that we leave every time we get up in the morning with our mobile phones and CCTV cameras. They had no idea where he'd gone. And they therefore decided to take the quite risky step of going into the bank with the permission from the very, very top of the bank on a Friday afternoon to see if they could open up whatever this guy had left in the safety deposit box and see if it provided any interesting evidence. Now, clearly, they had to do it very, very, very carefully because what they found was a deed box and two attache cases. And obviously, if they took the contents of those cases out in a clumsy way and put them back differently, it might be that the 
potential spy. I mean, they assumed by that stage he was a spy, but they had no real absolutely determinative evidence that he was a spy for the KGB. The spy would come back, find that his possessions had been tampered with, realise that he was under suspicion and would flee immediately. So it had to be done very, very, very carefully. And that's what happened on that Friday afternoon. MI5 went in and they had an expert locksmith waiting and they took the three items to the top secret MI5 laboratory near St Paul's Cathedral and the the locksmith opened up the the three boxes and they found you know some camera equipment they found a stash of photographs they found some magnifying glass that you might might be able to use for micro dots but there was nothing that absolutely nailed it until the main MI5 investigator spotted an old-style tabletop cigarette lighter. And he said to his colleagues, why on earth would this man put this cigarette lighter in his safety deposit box? So they put it under an x-ray machine, and in the middle it was grey, indicating there was a cavity. So they took the top off, and inside was a piece of green baize, and under that a screw. They undid that, and inside was the very thing that gave them that ka-ching, eureka moment. It was a whole set of miniature KGB encoding pads. And they knew these were KGB issue from previous examples of coding pads that had come into the hands of Western intelligence. And from that moment, they knew this man was absolutely beyond doubt a KGB agent and was almost certainly a KGB illegal. Hmm. It's incredible stuff. Right out of a movie, for sure. Absolutely, yeah. So you mentioned a minute ago, so obviously this is like the middle of the investigation that they already had Alonsdale under surveillance, but what was it that led them to Houghton and G in the first place to begin this investigation? Well, the main breakthrough came in April 1960 through the CIA, because the CIA, and this is where the story links with Tim Tate's book, The Spy Who's Left Out in the Cold, the CIA had an agent whose code name was Sniper, and this person, they didn't know his sex beyond doubt, they didn't know exactly who he was, had approached the Americans in 1958 in Switzerland and, and said, look, I will start spying for you. And he started to provide, because they assumed it was a, a man, some really valuable information. In April 1960, some new information came in from this agent called Sniper saying, look, there is a man who was working in Warsaw, the Polish capital, in 1951, and he was recruited by uh, Russian intelligence in 1951 when he was working in the office of the British naval attaché. This person was then sent back to the UK or went back in 1953 or so. He was taken over by the Russians um, and carried on spying there and he's now working in the British Admiralty. In other words, you know, the department, the, the, the armed force dealing with, with the Navy. And MI5 obviously received this news at a jolt. They jumped to light speed in their investigation and there was only one 
credible candidate who fitted this profile. In addition, by the way, Sniper, Sniper said this man has a name something like Hupkenner or Hupencord. But the only person who fitted that profile was a man called Harry Houghton, who was working at the British top-secret underwater defence establishment down on the southwest coast of Britain at a place called Portland. And your listeners will immediately guess, yep, that's why it's called the Portland Spy Ring. So Harry Houghton worked there. He was in his early 50s. He had been in the British Navy and, and served with a certain amount of distinction in World War II. He then got demobbed and he stayed in the Navy for a couple of years. And then he applied and got a job working, as Sniper had suggested, in the Naval Attaché's office in Warsaw before he did did such a bad job there it was discovered and and he had a reputation for drinking far too much and and causing problems at parties and throwing punches and things he got sent back early but incredibly he then got a job as a clerk working in this top secret underwater defense establishment called UDE down in Portland where Britain and NATO had focused an immense amount of their research about sonar torpedoes and everything connected with essentially underwater warfare and so obviously it was a crucial place that the KGB would want to get there get information from and Harry Houghton had basically split up with his wife in somewhat difficult circumstances and had formed a relationship with another woman who was working down at Portland whose name was Ethel G. Her nickname was Bunty. She was about nine years younger than Harry Houghton and she, by all accounts, had lived quite a sequestered life, sharing a, a house on the island of Portland with her elderly mother and a couple of elderly infirm relatives and so obviously when Harry Houghton made eyes at her she thought that he was quite an attractive proposition so they'd started a relationship together so that was how the whole process started and then Harry Houghton and this was very much old-fashioned spycraft Justin this this is very much analog intelligence in an analog age so it was putting a tap on Harry Houghton's telephone at home. It was intercepting his mail, and it was in intercepting the mail and listening to his phone calls that MI5 discovered he was coming up to London to do something. They didn't know what. On a Saturday in July 1960, and it was when he was tailed by the watchers to that meeting, which was just outside the world-famous Old Vic Theatre, where there was an open space and some benches that Harry Houghton and Ethel G, because she'd come up with him to London that day, was seen to meet a mysterious unknown man. And this man turned out to be Gordon Lonsdale. Hmm. Yeah, that, that's a pretty straight line once you get this, you know, godsend, this, this treasure trove of information from an, an agent in place. And for those of you listeners who yeah. are not sure who we're talking about, just go back a couple of episodes. I just interviewed Tim Tate recently about his book, Agent Sniper, and that goes into depth about about Agent Sniper, about Michael Golanuski. And so we talk a little bit about the Portland spy ring on that episode, but we're talking much more about it this time, of course. But that's that's a great interview and a great book as well to read for more in-depth reporting on on Agent Sniper and the information that he provided. So I do have to ask, though, Trevor, you mentioned that they got this information, I think you said April of 1960, yet 
Yep. Sniper reported that Houghton had been working since he'd been recruited in 1951, so close to 10 years there operating undiscovered. How do you think that he got away with it for so long? Well, he got away with it for so long because there was no clue available to British intelligence to suggest that anything had been stolen. I mean, he had operated and according to documents released during a short period when the Russians were open, relatively open about this in the 1990s after the Iron Curtain came down, showed he was stealing and passing for the Russians industrial quantities of documents while he was in Warsaw. I mean, security was really pretty slack and he would get them in the morning and there was some evidence that they'd be smuggled out by Houghton to his contact in, in Warsaw and photocopied overnight and they'd be available to the Russians almost as soon as they became available to to, to the British naval attaché. So, you know, people just weren't really alert to the security issue. And there was not, there was no breach, there was nothing, no clue that came in to British intelligence. So one has to remember the way in which the West had really no really accurate information at all about what was going on in Stalin's Russia. I mean, one forgets how hermetically sealed off it was. The control which the Soviet state exercised over its citizens and foreigners who came there. I mean, it was. there's no evidence of, of any high-level spies who were successfully giving information to people in the West at all in that period of the early 50s. And it's interesting that it was Sniper himself who was only starting handing information to the West from 1958. So, I mean, when Houghton came back to the UK and worked in, in the UDE, Again, one of the lessons to be learned from the Portland spy ring was how appallingly slack security was. And he was able to go into the storeroom, take out documents. And he, of course, would, would meet at that stage a different controller from the Russian, Russian London embassy to hand over the materials. And, I mean, MI5 also had problems because they had very few staff. We're talking here about having, you know, perhaps 100 officers in total. There were big cuts made after World War II. They had a very, very small team of watchers who tended to start at sort of 8 o'clock in the morning and finish work at kind of 6 and wouldn't work weekends. So it was very bureaucratic. And normally, you know, unless an agent is particularly clumsy or unlucky, very often the way in which an agent operating for a foreign state is caught is by counterintelligence. The first question that a Western intelligence agency will ask any defector is, who are we facing as enemies in your camp? In other words, who are the traitors operating in your country who we don't know about? And that indeed is what happened with this with Agent Sniper passing this information across. And, I mean, there are other reasons as well why why Halton um, got away with it, partly because information from his former wife, which she brought to the attention of the authorities in 1956, was pretty well, scandalously ignored by the authorities because of the sexism that was pre- prevalent at the time. His former wife, who was not quite straightforward, 
person that some people suggest and she certainly had an agenda uh, of trying to get her own back against Harry Houghton but but she had collected evidence well didn't collect evidence but she she knew of his trips up to London she reported these to the authorities and they were sadly and scandalously ignored yeah that that was just shocking when I read that honestly she comes to his employers and she says that my husband suddenly got a lot of money he's throwing around and he's been meeting with foreigners and I'm worried that he's selling out and they think oh well probably just an angry wife with an axe to grind let's just not look into this at all just really amazing stuff absolutely it's scandalous and and when MI5 um, looked back into this later they realized that that they'd made a a really bad mistake and um, the, the only thing in their favor as they pointed out was if they, of course, had arrested Harry Houghton at that time, they wouldn't have arrested G, Ethel G, because she wasn't at that time working with Harry Houghton as a spy for the Russians to smuggle out documents. And, of course, the other members of the spy ring would not have been arrested either because they hadn't started to operate. Right, right. It was In, in a way, it was good that it went on long enough to catch as many people as possible, for sure. But I have well, to ask that, that the, was that, that was that was, was the line that, that tops MI MI five ma- management pushed around later anyway. Right, right, yeah, that's a good party line for sure as well. You know, we would have missed more if we had not waited nine years to wrap these guys up. I don't think the Soviets <laughs> normally wait uh, waited that long when they thought they had somebody in their in their camp. So on that note, you said that he was recruited in 1951. What was his motivation to start spying for the Soviets? It was essentially money, Justin. I mean, he. Had got sent over to to Warsaw. I mean, knowingly because he knew there were benefits. A blind eye was turned to the fact that people who worked in these foreign embassies in Eastern Europe behind the Iron Curtain at that time would engage in black market activity, and certainly Harry Houghton did do that. But he had a massive chip on his shoulder as a personality. He felt that he'd been discriminated against and was treated badly by the people of a higher social class in the British Embassy. I mean, he was a kind of, you know, a working class, lower middle class kind of person. And there was much more snobbery and awareness of social class in Britain, you know, at that time in the early 1950s. He was given with his wife a, and his wife was very unhappy there as well, a, a not a very nice flat. And he obviously thought here was an opportunity to make some money. I mean, he did at one point tell the Russians that he thought Britain had become an American colony and suggested there was some anti-Americanism. But essentially, he was motivated by filthy lucre, as they say, by by money. And (laughs) Ethel G, who was recruited much, much later, she was clearly motivated by the same thing. Neither of them were ideological spies like the the famous Cambridge Five, for example. You know, Kim Philby, uh, Donald McLean Burgess and the rest of them. They're, neither of them were communists and motivated by that. Okay, right. That, that, that makes sense for sure. I have to wonder, how was Ethel pulled into this ring exactly? Because it's a big leap from girlfriend to, you know, co-conspirator in committing espionage, for example, did she show any interest in that kind of thing? I mean, was it like a very, very slow recruitment process for him? 
Well, the only source we've got that I think is reasonably accurate are these documents from the KGB archives that came out in the mid-late 1990s and, and got translated into English. And what seems to have happened was that, to cut a long story short, Houghton had blotted his copy book in 1956 by borrowing some documents from the strong room down in Portland without permission, not returning them quickly enough, and this coming to the attention of some of his colleagues down at Portland. And so he got reprimanded for this, and he got moved from an area at Portland where he had pretty free access to these secret documents to one where he didn't. And he had to basically find an excuse to tell his KGB controller as to what happened. And he, he said, untruthfully, that he'd been promoted. Whereas what had been really happened to him, he'd been, he'd been sidelined. Now, by this stage, he'd, he'd formed a relationship with Ethel G, who used to visit him, but never stay overnight, by the way. I mean, it's impossible to work out exactly what the relationship was. I mean, obviously, we were living in a time when social and sexual mores were, were very different, but there's no evidence that she stayed overnight and, and, and slept with him because she was sharing a house with her mother. But they, they became boyfriend and girlfriend at least, and she did travel up with him to London because throughout the 1950s when Houghton came back, he used to come up to London quite regularly, clearly to meet with his KGB contact. And he brought Ethel G up on a couple of those occasions and they booked in as man and wife together. So they must have shared a room. And so obviously they developed that relationship. And in the late 50s, so we're talking here about 19, late 1957, early 58, Harry Houghton said to his KGB contact, look, um, I've got this girlfriend and I think she could have access to documents. Would it be okay if I tried to recruit her? And the KGB successor organisation with the SVR are quite similar. They're, they're very, very prudent and cautious and careful. And it took them about nine or ten months mulling this over before they finally said, well, yeah, see if you can recruit her and, and explain why you come up to London. So this is what Harry Houghton apparently did with G. And she was uh, understandably dismayed and, and amazed, but also very relieved because she thought that Harry Houghton had another woman he was having a relationship mm. with. <laughs> and first of all, she said, no, I don't, I don't want to do this. But I think the prospect of money won her around. And having reported back to Moscow Centre that he didn't think that Ethel G would play ball, when Harry Houghton next took her up to London, Lo and behold, she had produced a number of documents about a new type of sonar, and that was in 19, late 1959. And it's quite amusing, actually, in these documents, because Gordon Lonsdale then came to visit Harry Houghton down on, in, in his cottage in Portland and met Ethel G. And, and he's, in his report back to Moscow, said she's a very nice woman, but an absolutely terrible cook. <laughs> which is uh, not, not what you expect a, a spy master to write about but obviously the cooking because at that stage of course in Britain the the famous cookery writers who, who've transformed I'm glad to say British cuisine over the past you know 20-30 years hadn't yet existed so I mean you had that 
that terrible food that mm. one associates with, with Britain in the late 1940s and 1950s was what Ethel G served up to, to Lonsdale. So she was then recruited and obviously she was paid some money. When she was arrested, she had quite a substantial amount of money, probably the equivalent of £60,000, £70,000 in stocks and shares and, and things uh, with no obvious explanation as to where that money had come from. Wow. I'm still in shock from what you said a minute ago that when she found out he was spying for the Soviets, she was relieved because she thought maybe he had another girlfriend. Like nothing could be worse than him dating more than one woman at the same time for Ethel. Well, anyway. the, 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 the irony about it all, Justin, was that was precisely the sort of thing that Harry Houghton was wanting to do. <laughs> he, some, some of the surveillance of him was conducted by a neighbor, MI5 and, and their network of police supporters had recruited a man with the splendid name of Cyril Bogust whose cottage overlooked that of Harry Houghton and so he was recruited to keep an eye on our friend Harry Houghton and in the reports there are ones of him bringing back at least two women back not not and any evidence to stay overnight but certainly Harry Houghton was sexually attracted to them because they were interviewed later after the arrest of the ring and there's also some evidence that he was involved in possibly being interested in a in a, in a wife swapping party oh boy so there was lots of exciting things going on down in rural Portland well before the the um, swinging 60s I can tell you a lot that people <laughs> didn't think of at the time and we don't associate with that period now <laughs> yeah so Harry didn't have much of a moral compass then in any sense is what you're telling me uh, I, I think yeah I think it had been demagnetized many many years ago <laughs> <laughs> absolutely so you mentioned a few minutes ago um, something about a new type of sonar what exactly was it that they were providing to the Soviets over these years at the UDE? Well, what happened was was that the, the first nuclear submarine was, was launched by the Americans in the early mid-50s called Nautilus. And the British wanted to have their first nuclear submarine. They, they called it HMS Dreadnought. And the thing is that when you've got a submarine which can stay underwater for weeks and stay on patrol for weeks and months on them without needing to come back to refuel with different traveling speeds and everything else you need a new type of sonar and the british had been very successful at developing a new type of sonar it was it was called type 2001 and of course this all seemed like science fiction because we're talking here about you know the late 1950s so the year 2001 was kind of over the horizon stuff and it really was very revolutionary and very, very groundbreak or rather water breaking, I suppose you might say. And mm -hmm. what's interesting is that the Russians at this time were very keen to develop their submarine capability. Back in the 1950s, early 50s, Russia really had a pretty weak navy. The Soviet Union had, of course, this absolutely massive coastline all around if you get the map out and look at it it's enormous but their navy was was pretty ineffectual and weak and when in 1956 after the death of stalin the new leader nikita khrushchev was was elected he decided to choose a new and for the russians very young admiral of the fleet called gorshkov and khrushchev said to him right your job is to create a soviet navy which is world beating 
and part of that is submarines you've got to make sure that we have a fleet of submarines ideally some of them are going to have to be nuclear to obviously match the americans crucial to that was obviously finding out the best possible sonar so the fact that the british were developing type 2001 sonar down at portland and the fact that harry houghton and ethel g had access to this new technology which involved by the way this massive kind of horseshoe of equipment at the front of of dreadnought this was at that turning point in technology when you were moving away from those old valves i'm sure most listeners now are too young to remember this i'm i'm now creaking old 66 but i mean in my youth when you had old radios you put these old valves in that lit up and then suddenly you had the transistor revolution when the transistor radios came in and for the first time the, the british had packed all that kind of technology into a small space at the front of this submarine and the russians were fascinated by it that was what they were after but they were also after material about developments in new types of torpedo homing torpedoes underwater torpedoes anything connected with underwater warfare that would help their navy so that was what they were so interested in and the, the fact that the british were focusing all their research and a lot of nato research there and of course the british in developing this underwater technology were benefiting from american advances as well so of course the russians were able therefore to kind of piggyback off um, american technology as well so that was why the russians are so interested and focused on on portland as a spying dest- destination if you like Hmm. Yeah, Harry and, and Ethel must have been absolute godsends for them with the access that they had during that time to all this cutting-edge uh, military technology. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there is the issue that we can talk about in a bit about other spies in the ring, which I write about in the book, and it is quite new and interesting, I think. But Portland was certainly, you know, a the major focus, I think, of KGB interest. Hmm. Yeah, certainly seems that way. By the way, before we go on, I want to take a moment to fill you guys in on the newest tool that I'm wearing and carrying in daily life. It's the Donovan non-metallic knife from Black Triangle. If you aren't familiar with Black Triangle, then you're really missing out. I love these guys because they put the dagger in cloak and dagger. If you've been following me for a while now, then you probably already know why Black Triangle has called their newest non-metallic knife the Donovan. It's named after General William Wild Bill Donovan, the head of the U.S. Office of Strategic Services during World War II. Under Donovan, the OSS was unconventional, unexpected, and highly effective, just like Black Triangle's tools. The Donovan is manufactured here in the United States, is made entirely of G10 composite, and comes with a thermoplastic sheath and a couple of amazing extras, which you'll have to see for yourself. You can find it at blacktriangle.com. That's B-L-K-Triangle.com. You can also get 15% off your first order with Black Triangle using the discount code SPYCRAFT101 or by navigating to blacktriangle.com slash SPYCRAFT101. I love mine, and I know you're going to love yours too. So, Trevor, these two agents, Harry and Ethel, they were obviously incredible, incredibly valuable, and Gordon was their controller, but who was he? Exactly, because we know where the name came from. It came from this baby in Canada. But who was the real Gordon? Like, how did he come to this position? What was his training? Everything. Well, it took a long, long while, only after he was arrested on the 7th of January 2021. And indeed, you know, after he'd been sentenced um, to famous trial in March 61, that this emerged. And 
even then the full story hasn't come out I think until recent years and some of the research which I did in Moscow for the book but pulling all the information together Justin his real name was Konon Trofimovich Molody and he was born in 1922 not 1924 like the real Gordon Arnold Lonsdale and he was the son of an eminent Soviet scientist and his very very clever wife and having been born I mean one forgets now how dislocated and difficult things were in in Moscow at that time basically the economy collapsed there was great poverty and indeed a lot of people didn't have enough to eat which included this family particularly after the father died very young leaving the mother whose name was Evdokia Molody to look after the two children now Dokia the mum had a family including a couple of sisters and they had gone off via China believe it or not to California and they settled in California and um, one of them called Tatiana came back to Moscow in about 1930 and saw the terrible early 30s the terrible plight the family was in apparently when a young Conon Molody was sent out to get food from the food queues he was so ravenously hungry he, he used to come back and there'd be no food left because he, he couldn't resist eating it and so the sister said look you know why don't you let's try and get a way of getting Conon out of the Soviet Union and give him a better life in in America and then a plot was hatched whereby he was essentially um, given some false papers and he ended up living in California. He arrived there aged about 11 and lived with his two aunts in, on the west coast of, of the states in California. And he went to a school called the A to Z school. All of this, by the way, only emerged, I say, after he'd been arrested and everything else and the FBI had carried out incredibly meticulous inquiries in California as a result of information that was collected by MI5 in London after the arrest that put the FBI onto his trail. Anyway, it was while he was in California that young Conon, who was a very, very bright student, learned obviously fluent English. But towards the end of the 1930s, his mother back in Moscow said, look, you've got to make up your mind, son. Do you, do you want to come back here and, and, you know, be true to the motherland? Or, or do you want to stay in America and he opted to go back to Soviet Union and he, he was very soon obviously drafted into the Russian army in the Red Army went through the most incredible privations like many many Russians he fought on the eastern sorry on the western front he was involved in the Battle of Smolensk he became um, an intelligence officer and at the end of the war he, he was discharged with a series of medals for for his bravery and he then started studying a law and Chinese at Moscow University and while he was there he was talent spotted in one of his last years by the KGB and he was recruited in about 1950-51 as an illegal by the man who was heading the illegals department who had a man called Pavlov who had been based in Canada and one of the reasons he was so attractive was of course he spoke fluent English 
He also had a very, very charming, bouncy personality because as an illegal, it's a very, very lonely life and you've got to be also very quick-witted, but you've got to be able to be a bullient and resilient and you know, keep calm when, and think quickly when all about you is very, very difficult. So he then went to the well-known training academy. It's now known as the Red Banner, Banner Academy where the Russian agents and illegals are trained. You know, he learned all how to throw off, how, you, how to find out if he was subject to surveillance, if he was being followed, how to throw off people, learn all about secret inks, encoding and all that stuff. And then by the sort of mid-50s, the KGB decided that this man, Colin Molody, should be sent to Britain with two other agents who we'll talk about in a bit, two Americans who were long-term KGB agents whose names were Morris and Lona Cohen. They were a married couple with the idea that this man, Molody, would be a controller of a network of agents in the UK, an illegal network, separate from the ones run from the Russian embassy. And so he was, and we talked about this earlier, given this legend as this Canadian businessman, and the cover of him coming to London, first of all, was that he would study Chinese at the School of African and Oriental Studies, sorry, School of Oriental and African Studies at London University. But of course, since he already knew Chinese from his university course, he'd even co-written a textbook of Chinese, Molody would be able to spend his time doing other things. And the reason that the KGB chose this course was also because they knew that Western intelligence, Canadian intelligence, American intelligence and British intelligence would send a number of their officers to this course to learn Chinese in order for the intelligence services to keep an eye on the Chinese state. So that, in short, was the real Conor Molody. That was who he really was. Hmm. Sounds like an incredibly impressive guy. I mean, look, at he's, he's lived three lifetimes, seems like, uh, all in one before he even made it to England. Well, no, I mean, he had just an immense charm. I mean, when, after he was arrested, he refused to say anything. And they, when he was taken to Scotland Yard, you know, the police headquarters, because they actually arrested him, they said, well, can we give you anything? He said, yeah, he said, I, I play chess. Can you possibly find me someone to play chess with? Oh, wow. So he charmed them to the extent they went off and found a police officer who played quite decent <laughs> chess for him wow. to go and play chess with him. And the MI5 officer who ran the investigation called Charles Elwell, he had a lot of sympathy with Lonsdale, partly Molody, real name Conor Molody, because he was so charming and highly intelligent and, and, and kind of interesting. And when he spoke to Elwell, when he interviewed him in jail, he, he, was, he was actually quite critical about the Soviet system and even hinted that he and suggested he would be willing to cooperate with the British if they reduced his sentence, but it didn't come to anything. Mm. But no, he, he, he was a remarkable man. And he, he, when he was recruited by the KGB, um, the Russian sources say, you know, he was asked, look, you know, it's a tough life. Are you sure you can put up with it? And he said, look, after all, what I've been through in the war, on the fighting to protect the Soviet Union from the Nazis and what I've seen, the freezing conditions, death, destruction, everything else. He said, I'm not scared of anything. Mm. 
Yeah, really something. What an incredible recruit he must have been for the illegals program. So do you happen yeah, yeah, to no, know? Absolutely. absolutely. Do you happen to know, like, what was the time period between his actual recruitment and when he arrived in Britain? Like, what was he doing? What was he trained on? Well, I've hinted at it a little bit. I mean, he was, according to the the official sources in, in Russia, he was essentially recruited about 1949-50. And then he would have been sent, say, for this extensive training, also training to improve improve his English, make sure that when he went as an illegal, you know, he would not give the game away by saying or doing something silly because the daily lives that we lead in the societies we live in, we so much of what we do is kind of automatic. So, as I said, it would have been encoding, secret inks, and, and all that sort of stuff. I mean, it's a one of the things dealing with the Russian sources and researching this, which makes it so fascinating, is trying to kind of shake out the, the, the truth from the untruth because so many things are written which are misleading. There are Russian sources that including Gordon Lonsdale's memoirs that he published after he was swapped um, and released in, in 1964 from jail. He suggested that he worked as an illegal in the States between 1952 and 54 before he came to Britain. But there's no real evidence for that. In fact, it seems just as likely, if not more likely, that he was still undergoing training in, in Russia. So we, there's this kind of grey period in his career between 1951 and 54 where we're not quite sure what, what he did. But I mean, he, he certainly was being prepared very carefully for this new enterprise in, in England. And he certainly seems to have been introduced to this couple of American spies I talked about, Morris and Lona Cohen, who were in Moscow at the time when he was being prepared Gordon Mollody, Colin Mollody, was being prepared to be sent to London. He does seem to have met the Coens, and he may even had some sessions to kind of sharpen up his American English with them before he, he arrived. Hmm. I see. So did he have to do any recruiting at all? It sounds like the ring was, was already pretty much ready to go. I mean, Houghton and G had already been recruited, and the Coens that we'll talk about in a few minutes were ready to go. So, I mean, it, it sounds like he, it was like a, like a turnkey operation almost, right, that he arrived in? Well, this, this is where we come to the tricky question about who else was in the spy ring that was controlled by Gordon Lonsdale. Because to, as, as your listeners will have worked out, to actually prepare for one illegal to go abroad was an immensely expensive exercise both in terms of time and money for the Russian intelligence service. It's a big, big investment. So you don't want to do that for something which is not likely to get you a good return on that investment. So bearing in mind, and this emerges from the Russian documents, that Molody was only given the two Portland spies, Harry Houghton and G to control from late 1959, mid-1959, late 59, but he arrived in Britain in the spring of 1955, you have to ask, what else was he doing for the previous three or four years? Mm -hmm. 
because I mean, although his front was as a Canadian businessman selling jukeboxes and traveling around, and one of his jukeboxes, by the way, was called the, the Trump, and it <laughs> sold, um, sold uh, chewing gum at the same time as it also dispensed, played records, you know, on, on the jukebox machine. And, and I think that this is clear now from the Russian sources. He did do some recruiting, and he does seem to have managed, with some help from the Coens, whose role was essentially as his communication operators, but also the Coens had a role linking up with the with the legal with the legal officers, KGB officers in the embassy. So, for example, you would have material that might come in from Portland, and that would have come in in the days before Lonsdale was running. Houghton and G would come in to be left in a, in a dead drop somewhere that would be and that would be picked up by the Coens and they would take it to another dead drop to be picked up by someone else from the embassy so that was the sort of thing that was they were doing but to answer your question when he arrived Lonsdale did seem to at some stage penetrate the chemical weapons establishment in England called Porton Down and the Russians were interested in it for two reasons. One, Britain was developing the first synthesized nerve gas anywhere in the world. It emerged from experiments with chemicals and ICI. And this, of course, became it was the, the granddaddy of Novichok and, you know, all these, these nerve agents that and we've heard about because of the poisoning of the Skripals. Mm -hmm. And also there were biological weapons. And also the Brits were also developing the early versions of the CS gas used in riot control, which would obviously be of interest to a totalitarian state like the Soviet Union. He did seem to have an agent in there who he recruited uh, with the help of the Coens, because the Coens also had a role as kind of talent spotters. He also ran, according to Russian sources, an agent called, who they called named, the um, code named Agent K, who seemed to have access to industrial secrets. There also seemed to be a number of other illegals, kind of uh, illegal support network, which he, he ran as well. And he seemed to get some details of the British rocket program. They had a program called Blue Streak, which ended up costing too much money, and so it got stopped. But until the late 1950s, the, I say the British were having a, a rocket program. So I think he was, you know, engaged in other espionage activities before. In in 1959, he was passed the Houghton and G to manage, and of course, I mean that happened to be one of those sort of things that turned out to be a disaster for the Russian intelligence service because. Up until that time, as you pointed out earlier, Harry Houghton wasn't anywhere on the radar screen of MI5. So, I mean, ironically, it was the transfer of them, these two spies, Houghton and G, across to Lonsdale that led to the long-term collapse of the, of the spy ring. Right, right. They were undone by someone they'd never even heard of, right? The Polish Until then. I mean, there, there was one other spy we, we know. For about six weeks or two months, Molody did run another long-term very successful spy for the russians called melita norwood and some of your listeners may have heard of her because she was the 
which is called the spy who came in from the co-op or the granny spy. Hmm. She got exposed in about 1990 as a result of some defections from the Soviet Union. And she was interviewed outside her house and there was this elderly lady. She was a committed ideological communist and had been spying for the Russians very successfully right from the 1940s through until she retired in the 1960s, passing a series of quite valuable industrial secrets to the Russians. But she was a bit of a Puritan and by all accounts didn't get on with Conlon Molody. He was about one person he did not manage to charm. She felt he was too much of a playboy apparently and asked to be transferred back to a ideologically sound communist controlling her out of the Russian embassy. So anyway, he had he had quite a few things to do, did Conor Molody, apart from running Houghton and G by all accounts. Hmm. So there were five people that were arrested in the ring in that era anyway, but it sounds like the ring was actually... In, in much, January 61, yeah. Right, right, in 61, but it sounds like the ring was, was what, like twice that big, potentially? Or, I mean, were there were there 10 or more people involved, do you think? Do you have an estimate on that? Well, well, you've got the Portland spy ring, which was five people. So you've got Houghton and G actually within the underwater detection establishment. You had Gordon Lonsdale, real name Connor Molody, who was their KGB controller. And then the communications operators for Connor Molody, Gordon Lonsdale, were the two Cohens who were based out in a bungalow in the northwest London suburb of Ryslip. And they had arrived in, in Britain on Christmas Day 1954. And after Lonsdale had arrived in Britain, they had gone and chosen this bungalow, which happened to be next to a, a large airfield occupied by the US 3rd Air Force. And one of the reasons why they chose it was they felt that insofar as they had radio communications with Moscow, which they did have, they'd be less likely to be intercepted because of all the other noise from the other radios and that sort of thing. So you've got the five spies there, and then you've got a number of other spies who were, I think, you know, there were a number of others definitely run by Conor Molody, but the only ones who we can be, I think, absolutely sure of is, is Melita Norwood, because the other evidence is nothing, all of this is based on Russian sources. Russian sources you need to treat with an element of scepticism. But I, I think there were a a number of other agents who were being run by Gordon Lonsdale. I mean, I can't give you a number, Justin, but, you know, we might be talking about, you know, any number between three and ten. Well, it's amazing that even after all this time, there's so much that we'll probably never know about these stories. Well, it'll only be when the Russian Foreign Intelligence Service opens its archives that one will get a definitive answer and you know i mean as you probably know cia is very very careful about the documents which it releases in in this country in the uk mi5 documents only get released at the earliest 50 years five zero years after the events wow. and <laughs> most of them tend to come out more like 60 years later MI6 essentially doesn't officially release any 
at all but before after 1949 they've released a certain amount before 1949 but there are lots of others that they they haven't you know so you you have a strange position whereby you can find the number of say mi5 documents about say two of the cambridge five guy burgess and donald mclean their mi5 documents are released but you know any documents of the same period from MI6, they're not going to be released for, for decades, mm. you know, if ever. Well, well, that's unfortunate for people like you and I, at least, and the listeners as well. Well, yeah, but I tell you, I'm in America, you have a more open system than we, we do in Britain. You, you, and you get certain exceptions, like, for example, you know, the John Kennedy, John F. Kennedy assassination, whole release of documents as a result of executive order, and then certain spy documents about the denazification of Germany after World War Two related to the CIA have been released. You know, so the and the freedom of information laws that you have in the States do apply to your intelligence agencies. There's a blanket exemption in the UK mm. for our intelligence agencies. I see. Yeah, well, that's lucky for us that we get some stuff anyway, and especially with the amount of collaboration and cooperation between the two organizations the two countries there's some insights to be had from the american side as well i'm sure well I, absolutely absolutely so we've, we've been referencing the cohen's quite a few times already can you tell me a little bit more about them they were an american couple who were illegals as well well th they were yeah a fascinating uh, couple morris cohen was born in new york to jewish parents left-wing background he became a communist in the mid-late 30s. And the turning point in his life was to go and fight with the Republicans in the Spanish Civil War. This was a big kind of galvanizing event for people you know, on the progressive left in Europe in the 1930s. And he went out to fight against Franco in 1937. He got wounded. When he recovered, he was recruited in Spain by the legendary KGB spy master called Alexander Orloff and that was a very big event in Morris Cohen's life. He was then given half a comb and he was told go back to New York and someone will contact you and indeed he was and he was the two halves of the comb fitted and he then started doing some low-level work for the KGB just for the war and then he then started running a number of agents who were in the munitions factories and armaments. And by then, he had met the woman who's become his wife called Lona Cohen, who had come to New York from a country background. Her parents were, were Polish, not that far from, from New York. And she, like Morris Cohen, moved in left-wing communist circles. They both joined the Communist Party. And then he proposed marriage. They got married and... After she'd accepted his proposal, she confessed he was a KGB spy because the KGB said, look, see if she'll work with you. Because they do like couples, working couples if they can, as spies because they have companionship working together. And after, first of all, you know, being scraped off the floor with amazement, she agreed to do it as well. And so both during World War Two, they they spied for the KGB. Most famously, Lohan, uh, Lona in 1945 was sent by the KGB to Albuquerque, New Mexico, to pick up 
the first complete plan of the atomic bomb from a KGB agent, an American called Ted Hall, this brilliant 19-year-old physicist who was working on the Manhattan Project. And she was lucky to escape with her life. And that story of how she got that plan out of Albuquerque and, and back to New York to be sent back to Moscow is part of KGB legend. After World War II, when, when Morris came back from the war, he was demobbed. There was a period, a dramatic period, when the FBI arrested a number of Russian agents. So they were basically put on hold. They did a bit more spying. And then there was another period in 1950 when the Rosenbergs and uh, other KGB spies were arrested. And the Russians essentially said, look, we've got to get the Cohens out. And so they were exfiltrated via Mexico back to Moscow in case they were arrested and, and caused more problems. And the Cohens back in Moscow were the loyal communists as they were, but very frustrated. They wanted to get back to spying. At one point, Lona Cohen said, you know, spying to, to me is like cocaine, you know, and the buzz of it. And they were both very, very committed communists as well. And so this was when the plan was hatched that they would adopt the identity, the legends of, of, of what meant what to be, meant to be a New Zealand couple given New Zealand passports and sent to Britain to work with Connor Molody. And so they arrived and that's how they started work as two illegals. So as I said, they were given actually genuine New Zealand passports, which were cleverly organized by the KGB with help of a New Zealand agent of theirs in the Paris Embassy of New Zealand. And new documents have recently come out about this man. And he, very, very clever New Zealand, who helped the the Cohens get their, get their passports in when they came to Britain in 1954. And the advantage to both Gordon Lonsdale and the, the Cohens, whose cover name, by the way, was, was Peter and Helen Kroger, was that if you had a passport from what was then part of the British Empire, you were not checked when you went through passport control in the same way as you would as if you had a passport from um, another country which was not part of the British Commonwealth. So that was that was how they arrived in this country and their background. So two immensely experienced illegals and all three of them, the two Cohens and Gordon Lonsdale, Connor Molody, were honoured later after their spy swaps by being given postage stamps, which are collector's items in Russia these days. Yes, yes, that's that's one amazing thing actually to go off on a tangent for a moment is how much Russia celebrates its own intelligence heroes on commemorative stamps. I have a few myself, as a matter of fact. I'm looking at them right now. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, I, I can see Gordon looking at us right now. As a matter of fact, he got his own stamp in 1990 along with a few other guys. But that's an incredible story there, honestly, and it really speaks to, I guess, what must have been the value of the stuff coming out of the UDE that they have these tremendously valuable – Agents that they brought in, these illegals, you know, enormous expense, enormous time, commitment. You know, some of the best of the best are all concentrated right there in the area around London and Portland to facilitate this information getting back to, I guess, to the Soviet Navy in the end, right? I'm absolutely right, yeah. I mean, the a famous 
Russian KGB officer called Vasily Dozhdalev. He, he recruited the infamous British spy George Blake in, in North Korea. And he came to London and he, in fact, ran Houghton and G for a short period in early 1959 before they were handed over to Conor Molody. And he was basically outed Vasily Dozhdalev as a result of the arrest of the spies, Portland spy ring in January 61 and he went back and then he played a big role in the illegals department back in Moscow center and the sources in Moscow I met said that Dozdalev was absolutely fuming with rage at having these two spies who he ran very successfully taken away from him and and given to Molody because the trouble is that as soon as a host intelligence service starts looking into a Russian illegal, they will start finding holes in their legend. It's just the way it goes. You know, you can only put these people under so much observation. When you look at them carefully, there are gaps in their story. And so Dozdalev felt that the decision to take Houghton and G away from him was the beginning of the end of the Portland spy ring. And indeed, he was right. Right, yeah, it's these guys were some of the best in the world at what they did, but it's it's truly impossible to be another person when you've got a committed team of investigators and surveillance experts, you know, keeping tabs on you at all times. Eventually, there'll be a, some kind of slip up or some kind of spot in the record that doesn't make sense, and it all eventually leads to, in this case, the safe deposit box and to their arrests, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So, so it, it doesn't mean that the Russians will stop creating illegals but obviously in the current digital age we live in it's on the one hand it causes a lot of extra problems for you because all the records but of course you can equally well you can falsify documents with more ease in some ways right right yeah there's there's difficulties and opportunities that abound I, I would imagine I'm not really an expert on that kind of thing but I would say for certain that you know for every defense there's some sort of weakness you know or a go around or something and and you know there's value in inserting your people into a foreign country no matter what yeah yeah so how were they eventually arrested you said they all happened on the same day is that right in 1961 yeah well this is where we return to our friend michael golonievsky the polish spy who was the subject of tim tape's book who was um agent sniper and what happened was in late 1960 Golonievsky got wind of the fact that he might have been betrayed. And so early in 1961, he got a message to the CIA in Berlin saying, I want out. And essentially, I mean, although he was acting under a false name, he essentially defected on the 4th of January 1961. He brought his mistress with him. And Western intelligence... Obviously, the news of his defection was immediately passed by the CIA in Berlin to British intelligence in London. And as soon as this news came into MI5, they realised that this meant they were going to have to act with extreme urgency about the Portland spy ring because the first thing the KGB were going to do with Polish intelligence after they learned of the defection of Golonievski was go back over all the information that he had that could be compromised, which would include his knowledge of people like Harry Houghton. 
and you know for all we knew it as well he had other knowledge about you know, other members of the ring but certainly he knew about Harry Houghton because he'd passed that message and information on to the CIA and then to MI5 so they realised they were going to have to arrest the Portland Spy Ring post haste they couldn't wait and watch as they were hoping to unfortunately MI5 had intercepted messages of Harry Houghton saying that he was coming up to London the first Saturday of January 1961. They didn't, they, MI5, weren't quite sure what he was going to do, but they trailed him up and he came up on the train with Ethel G. He went to the Old Vic and who should turn up at the Old Vic but Conor Mullady, who of course was known at the time only as Gordon Lonsdale. And fortunately for MI5, when the three of them joined together and, and met outside the old Vic, she, Ethel G, was carrying a wicker basket which was full of secret documents in envelopes from the UDE. So they were caught red-handed with the secrets that were absolutely necessary for a successful prosecution. So they were arrested and taken back to police headquarters at New Scotland Yard. And then MI5 and the police went out to the rice slip bungalow where the Coens lived and they planned it to arrive at the time that they assumed Gordon Lonsdale would arrive in the evening normally on a Saturday having met Houghton with a new cache of secrets so in other words they wouldn't be suspicious and they knocked on the front door and the front door was opened by Morris Cohen and we've got to bear in mind at the time again the, the British intelligence people thought this man was a man called Peter Kroger. His legend was as an antiquarian bookseller. And they said, can we pop in and have a chat with you? They said they were investigating burglaries in the area. And essentially, they went in and when they asked this couple whether they knew anything about the man who looked like Gordon Lonsdale and they pretended to be all innocent, they said, well, you're being arrested. It was quite interesting because the wife, Lona Cohen, who's very quick-witted, said, oh, can I just stoke up the the cold boiler out the back back there to pick up her to do allegedly to do the stoking of this boiler picked up her handbag and there was a sharp-witted female police officer who went with her and when she saw that she picked up this bag she said oh no you're not going to go anywhere near that boiler because <laughs> obviously she was planning to destroy evidence mm -hmm. and you know she, Lona Cohen, was confronted by the police officer and the MI5 people that were waiting outside. And inside her handbag were microdots. And all around the cottage, immediately they found, as evidence of espionage, a talcum powder container which contained, you know, magnifying glasses to read microdots. And they were arrested and taken back to New Scotland Yard. But it was only a couple of days later that with complete amazement their real identities were discovered and this was because the FBI had been hunting the Coens since they fled New York in 1950 remember they were exfiltrated back to Moscow and they were making no progress they had no idea where they'd gone they, the trail had gone dead and so they'd sent their, their fingerprints the fingerprints of the Coens all around the world to police forces and FBI officers around the world working with embassies. And so when the Coens were taken back to New Scotland Yard, fingerprint checks were made 
and there was this another ka-ching moment, another eureka moment when suddenly you thought, oh my goodness me, there's a direct match between the fingerprints of the people we've just arrested, the antiquarian bookseller and his wife pretending to be Peter Kroger, and really they are Morris and Lona Cohen. So you can imagine the jubilation there was in Washington, D.C., at the headquarters of the FBI when the news came through that, in fact, MI5 had caught not a sprat but an enormous mackerel in their espionage fishing net. Incredible, incredible stuff, really. Realizing that you've got a, a, a couple there, it's Americans posing as New Zealanders working in England at the behest of the Soviet government. It's just the last thing that you would have thought <laughs> of until it happened. Yeah, you know? I know. You, you, could, you couldn't invent it, Justin. I know. I know. I would have said that's not realistic if I'd read that in fiction. And yeah, there they yeah, were. No, it, and they were caught. Yeah, yeah. And then there was a trial and, you know, they were, they were all found guilty. Gordon Lonsdale was given 25 years. The Coens were given 20. And Houghton and G were given 15 each. And it's pretty clear now that if the full level of the treachery of Houghton and G was known, they would have probably got 20 years as well. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, the story ended with two spy swaps, famous one of Gordon Lonsdale for a man called Grover Wynn, which has recently been the subject of a movie with Benedict Cumberbatch called The Courier, where a really interesting movie. Not in my view quite as good as The Bridge of Spies, but a really good spy movie for your listeners who are interested yeah, in that. Absolutely. I definitely enjoyed it. Is Molody is he is he portrayed in that film or is he just in the in the in titles or something? I can't recall if he's actually a character in it or not. No, no, he he's not a character in it. No, okay, he's no, he's just a figure because the focus is very much on on Greville Wynn, and um, the two never met. I mean, the the swap is, is a different. They never actually, in short, no, he do, he doesn't figure. It's not the way mm-hmm. the script is written. Mm-hmm. I do recall in it's your pity, book really. you have a photo of the swap taking place, a photo taken from a distance. Anyway, don't you? Yeah, from the from the East German side. So that's quite interesting. So you, uh, this is before these swaps took place on the Glenica Bridge. This is a, a, a different checkpoint. So you, you're, you know, the photograph was taken at a real moment of history. Oh yeah. But the it took five more years before the Cohens were swapped. What's interesting in the files that have been released is that as soon as he was back in the Soviet Union, Gordon Lonsdale started to write letters to the Coens in their British jail under an alias. But, I mean, it was perfectly clear what was going on to MI5. All all the letters were intercepted Hmm. and carefully read for any clues. But it took five years because you only can have a spy swap when both sides have got some pieces to swap on the international chessboard. And the Russians behaved, frankly, pretty despicably. They had to manufacture the arrest of someone who was not really involved in spying at all, a young person called Gerald Brooke, who was religious and was trying to smuggle religious literature into Russia. Hmm. And he he got betrayed and picked up by the KGB and sent to a labor camp. And the Russians basically trumped up charges against him and then extended his time in jail and his health was failing in the the end the public uh, opinion in Britain was stoked up 
to favour a swap. The Russians are also very adept and the KGB had a very effective disinformation department that would make use of friendly agents of influence who might be journalists and others who would you know, write stories that were useful to the KGB and so they got this atmosphere going and, and the swap took place in 1969 but to save a bit of face for the British this man Gerald Brook and a couple of other of some hippies who were arrested in the States for smoking dope and stuff they were added to the package so to speak they were released first and then the Coens were only released from jail three months later. Mm. So there was a fig leaf to say, well, oh, they're not really linked. But in fact, everyone <laughs> right. in the British establishment knew that they were linked. And then when they were back in the Soviet Union, Conor Molody and the Coens, they then got involved in teaching the next generation of illegals to come and spy in the West. Oh, wow. You got to learn from the best, I suppose, the people that have been there. <laughs> yeah. Incredible but the thing to remember, I mean, not not all the, the illegals were successful. I mean, many, many of them were actually engaged in East Germany and elsewhere, keeping watch on dissidents. And then a number of them who were sent to the West fell prey to the flesh pots of capitalism and they would <laughs> decide to defect across to the West. Right. They became in alcoholics and that sort of thing. So one of the reasons, I think, why the Russians understandably put Conor Molody and the Coens on a, on a pedestal along with the Cambridge Five and certain other Western spies is that they were to some extent the exception and not the rule. It was their very exceptionalism that makes them icons for the, for the Russian intelligence service. Yeah, they, they have such an incredible story to tell and a lot of lessons to pass on to the next generation that are coming to take their place as well, I'm certain. And it, it certainly makes oh, you yeah, wonder yeah. I mean, they, how many are here now or here or there or anywhere at the moment now because i'm certain there's more than a handful well you know almost by definition unless you have as the fbi had with the um, operation ghost stories a high up agent in place in moscow who can tell you who the illegals are you don't know who they are by definition and also the russians have developed a little bit their nature of the illegals a lot of them are people like Anna Chapman and, and to some extent the illegals who are in Operation Ghost Stories whose job is to become agents of influence you know to make friends in the political establishment spray money around and gain influence for your country in ways other than collecting confidential secret or secret information I mean, there's an example with a lady, Chinese lady called Christine Lee, case in the UK only in the past couple of weeks where she was named publicly as an agent of influence of the Chinese Communist Party because she had been going around meeting MPs using her law firm in London. And uh, she denies these charges, by the way. But all, all of this is, is public in the British newspapers and British MPs and others have been warned of these agents of influence to be careful about who they take money from in case there are any strings strings attached to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's that's worth a whole other episode in itself, the agents of influence, because there's no deception or there's very little i should say deception and there's no double life to be led hardly at all you're just convincing people about your cause really right out in the open so yeah that's a subject i'd love to dive into one day as well 
Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I mean, uh, I think there probably is an element of deception because they're not really revealing who they're working for and the purpose for which they are providing the money. I mean, certainly, you know, if you're operating on behalf of, for example, of the Russian Federation and you are providing money to an MP, you are doing it in order to get influence. You're not just saying, oh, here's this money for this event um, for the goodness of my heart, for charity. You're doing it with an ulterior purpose. But as you said, it's a completely different subject, Justin, which right, is, is right. well worth study and, and conversation on another occasion. Yeah, it definitely is. Yeah, I think they catch a lot of people here and they end up charging them here in the U.S. anyway with failure to register as a foreign agent because, you know, you can in the United States, you can advocate for the Russian government and the Chinese government. But you just have to say up front that you're doing so. And, of course, a lot of people don't. Yeah, yeah. And, they and, end up and the plan in this country. Yeah, and the plan is to introduce some broadly parallel legislation in this country because the intelligence services are aware of the fact that there are a number of gaps in the law. They don't have, if you like, the legal weapons in their armory which they feel they need to have to match those in the states. Because, of course, the Russians have introduced laws for about agents of, of influence. The difference is, I think, that the Russians are, are very prone to use those legal weapons as a way of closing down dissident opinion like recently mm -hmm. the organization that has been looking into for example the great terror of 1930s and the gulags the, I think it's called memorial or something like that and that's been closed down by the Russian Federation on the basis of allegations excuse me on the basis of allegations that that is an agent of influence on behalf of a of a foreign government and there's as far as i'm aware no evidence of that at all right 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 yeah that's uh they don't need evidence to uh, make an accusation like that and shut down an inquiry for sure so trevor what in the end you know the, they all went to jail like you said what was the overall impact on national security i mean how effective were they at really getting this critical information this targeted information to the soviets well i i i, I they've been very uh, there have been various estimates in, in Russia about the value of this spying. I mean, to some extent, it was like a massive piece of industrial espionage, which saved the Russians years of research effort and billions of rubles. And it's established now beyond doubt that the Russians definitely developed a sonar for their classes of sub nuclear submarines based on the type 2001 sonar and when this was recognized by british nuclear submariners when they first heard the telltale sonar sounds that were so close to the type 2001 they thought this must be a copycat sonar the the british submariners some of them the wags in the navy christened it 2001 ski because they were convinced <laughs> you know that it was basically ripped off the russians had ripped off the british model if the russian sources to be believed and I, I think they're probably right here they certainly got advances about cs gas they may well have got some advances on nerve agents like the vx series of nerve agents so and then other types of industrial espionage were valuable to them. But we've got to put the Portland spying into historical perspective. Although it obviously damaged national security of Britain and to some extent NATO, 
it didn't balance it didn't change the balance of power between west and east in a really really serious material way if you compare for example with the walker spy ring operating in the states for i think about 15 16 years this caused really really immense damage to the extent that an internal cia assessment said that if nuclear war had broken out and you've got to bear in mind that nuclear war is very much based on nuclear submarines in terms of you know the any conflict between russia and the west then it could well have affected the outcome of that conflict that's the walker spy ring so you know have had serious adverse effects but it wasn't something that was likely to affect the status of democracy and the continuation of, of the West. And uh, you know, it, it wasn't fatal by any means. Mm-hmm. There's so many things that are, are so valuable when the Cold War goes hot. But until then, there's a lot of other means to keep things cold, I suppose. So, But it, it sounds like the last thing that we would have wanted is Russian, Soviet nuclear submarines that are equivalent to British and American submarines underwater. That could have been a potential disaster if the war ever went hot, for sure. Yeah, yeah. And then, I mean, the more that's emerged about Soviet nuclear submarines, I mean, in in some ways they were very, very impressive. But as some former commanders of British nuclear submarines shared with me, they discovered that one of the problems with the Russian system was the quality of the personnel. Very often they weren't very efficient on submarines. There was quite a lot of drunkenness. And so the quality of the personnel was just not often as high. And so much of this military equipment depends on the quality of the personnel operating them, their morale, discipline, and so on and so forth. And there was no suggestion at any point during the Cold War that although the Russians caught up very considerably in a whole lot of areas and did develop some groundbreaking technology, subject to certain things that the happened during the while the walker spy ring were operating and it didn't really affect the balance of power but you know undoubtedly the portland spy ring caused the west a lot of damage yeah no question about it i think you really laid out that case really well here so it's an incredible story and i really appreciate you joining me today to talk about it because this is certainly one of my favorite cold war espionage stories and um you've told it very well so are you working on another book now? I mean, is this a once and done for you or have you already moved on to another project? No, no, I've just actually submitted a, a book proposal by my agent to some publishers and I'm hoping that a publisher will uh, find it as exciting as I do. I mean, I, I'd, I'd rather not share the full detail, but essentially it's a, a new angle on the, well, I think it's a new angle on on the famous Cambridge Five that have been written about again and again and again. But I think there are a number of new things to be said, and I'm really excited about it And in terms of the documents and in terms of the, the people involved and what one can say about it. So that's what I'm hoping will be my next book. Good. Yeah, that sounds fantastic. That's an incredible story and i mean you're right that it has received a lot of coverage in the past but just also as you said you know documents are still coming to light you know from many decades ago so the more insight that we can get into that situation the better i think for sure yeah yeah i i, I certainly think so i mean there are quite a lot of books about espionage history and you know trying to find one that's really really exciting in one way or 
um, able to research it and not feel that your life's going to be in danger if you know what I mean. <laughs> if you you got to have a, have a balance about it. But I, I find it fascinating and also trying to get at the truth and making sure that you you're trying to write a, a good story, but you're trying to make it accurate and fair. Putting the sources in. I mean, I'm, I'm share with you and and some of your listeners. You know, it can be a bit frustrating sometimes. You read some espionage history. And you find you you come to a paragraph, and you say, "How on earth does that person know that? What's their basis of them saying it?" And you find there's no footnote, or if there is a footnote, all it does is refer to another book where there is no footnote explaining where that came from. So I've always tried, and certainly tried in dead doubles, to ensure that almost everything I've well everything I've written has got a source. It's got you know, a basis in fact so that people can follow it through. And you need a balance, obviously, because if you make too much of it, the whole thing becomes a great, boring, heavyweight academic tome, you know. But it's important to be fair to people and be accurate, scrupulously accurate to the facts. You can still write a really good story. And I've recently met some people who... who been involved in British intelligence in the past and they they certainly I think appreciate that approach and as a result I think were more willing to trust me at least I hope that was the impression they gave than with with certain other authors oh right yeah that's so critical actually getting to sit down with somebody who is has some knowledge and some insight that they can provide and getting them to open up to you a little bit. I mean, that's that's really crucial for understanding all of this history. So anyone you can get is, is really viable, I'm certain. Yeah, yeah. And it's about mutual trust. You know, it's about, I mean, for example, dealing with the, the charming families of the two main MI5 officers who dealt with dead doubles. The families are obviously concerned that I wasn't going to be unfair to their beloved fathers at the same time I had to keep my independence my job wasn't to write a propaganda book you know I was able to keep my own integrity as a writer but also make sure that I told for the first time the real story of the incredible work that these two intelligence officers had done and in the process of that you know you find a, a very moving love story between one of them and a woman he meets while he's doing the investigation and they fall in love and he proposes and they get married and the, the the date of their marriage is the reason why one of these actually misses a key event in the mi5 investigation so oh, right, love right. is put before work love is put before work even in the depths of the british intelligence agencies Yep. There's there's definitely a lot of stuff from your book that we haven't covered here on the podcast. There's no way to cover it all in just an hour and a half or so anyway. But, you know, I encourage everybody to get out there and read the book because it's a really valuable contribution to Cold War espionage history for certain. One more time, the book title is Dead Doubles, The Extraordinary Worldwide Hunt for One of the Cold War's Most Notorious Spy Rings by Trevor Barnes. So I've read it cover to cover. It's fantastic. I think you're going to love it as well. Please pick it up. I'm going to link it up as well on my Instagram and Facebook pages later on so you can easily find it. So uh, Trevor, is there anywhere that people can connect with you online if they want to learn more or follow about your announcements for your forthcoming book? 
Yes, at, um, at Trevor W. Barnes. If people sort of go on my Twitter account, they'll see I, I've been regularly tweeting about the Portland Spiring, and in particular the anniversaries. I've just been tweeting about the anniversaries of the searches of the houses of the three or three of the main spies, the Coens and Harry Houghton and Nettle G and what was found and, you know, with photographs and so on and so forth. So that's the best way to connect with me. And I'd love to hear from anyone who is interested in espionage and wants to send me a tweet. Great. Yeah, that's so it's Trevor W. Barnes on Twitter. I've been following you for a while now, and you've got a lot of fantastic photos. Like you mentioned, the black and white evidence photos from their houses, everything uncovered, the radios and everything. So it's, well, it's you, really you, you had some good ones as well, Justin. You put yeah. me on to one about Harry Houghton that I wasn't aware of before. Yeah, yeah, so, like pop up here and there. So, so much of this work is 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 meeting other people, sharing knowledge, and that's what I love. It you meet so many fantastic people who are interested, and and most people are willing to be helpful, and do their best to help you. And of course, one does one's best to help other people as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I I hope to spur as much interest as I can in stuff that happened. You know, for young people today, you know, we're talking about events from 60 years ago. That might as well be the Stone Age is probably their their preconception, <laughs> and I'm trying to avoid that. And I'm trying to spur a lot more interest in that period of time for certain. And, you know, I think I've done that. It's good to read about it and live those lives, live vicariously through those people a little bit, because there are some amazing stories, including yours for certain. Well, thank you again, Trevor, so much. The book is called Dead Doubles. I really appreciate you joining me today. And uh, I look forward to your next book as well. Well, it's a pleasure talking to you, Justin. And thank you for all your listeners for listening to me and you chat have <laughs> a great day or evening or whatever time of day you're you're having <laughs> a little bit earlier than it is for you but thanks a lot trevor take care pleasure as always thanks for listening to this episode of the spycraft 101 podcast if you're interested in supporting this program and all my other efforts you can subscribe to my page at patreon.com my patrons get exclusive access to long-form blog posts that dive deep into some of the most amazing stories in the history of espionage and receive free or discounted books and products from the Spycraft 101 store. That includes a free PDF copy of my own book, Spy Shots Volume 1, 101 True Tales from the World of Espionage. I want to say a special thank you to everyone who's been a supporter for the last few months. Here's a quick message from one of my current patrons about why they chose to subscribe. I listen to Spycraft 101 for the crazy stories of real people doing real things. Fantastic guests that describe amazing operations that are so outlandish that if it was in a book, I'd dismiss it as too far-fetched. Justin manages to deliver enthralling stories every episode. You can also find lots more content on my Instagram page at Spycraft101 or at my website, Spycraft101.com. Thanks again, and I hope you'll stick around because there is lots more to come.